Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Veronica and John Avia from El Burro and the Bowl coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my frequent co-host and good friend, Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing all right. How you decide the order which uh, co-host or good friend go in? Sometimes I'm good friend and co-host. Sometimes I'm co-host and good friend. It's very improvisational. You, I- As you know, I don't really script what I'm going to say. I was just wondering if it depends on my level of uh, friendship of the week or because occasionally friend just drops off completely. I mean, you did hook me up with a pretty fabulous dinner uh, Friday night at uh, Curate Curate up in the Woodlands. Uh, we're not going to talk about it on the show. I'm just going to I'm just going to acknowledge that it happened and thank Chef Austin Simmons for spoiling us. But yes, you're in, you're in my good graces right now. Okay, just wondering should. Uh, should mention my friendship level. May rate it out of ten. Uh, I'd say you're about a seven and a half. Damn, what does it take to get to a ten? Well, there's. Like I, a, I don't want to. I don't even want to know. That's <laughs> probably it's something I don't even want to get into. Well, I, I should be nicer to you. This is your last show. This is my last show. Uh, you're moving to Seattle with your wife for a year. For one year, which so. is a strange thing—a predetermined one-year move. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens when you marry a, a doctor. Yes. Uh, so I will, I, w- I was going to save this to the end, but since we're here, uh, thank you for your contributions to the show over the last year and a little bit. Uh, you know, when I came to you with this idea, you could have told me it was stupid or, I, or I that probably you, did tell you, you probably stupid, did, but... or, or that you didn't know what a podcast was, but you've been, you've been a good sport about this. And I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Now that I'm not on the show, I'm sure you, I'm sure you will rise through the rankings very quickly. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Our our listeners are uh, growing all the time. I, I, I'm actually very satisfied with the size of the audience. Uh, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, let's get into the news of the week. Uh, I want to start with something that is uh, serious and sad and a little bit dated. Uh, Anthony Bourdain passed away a couple of weeks ago. Uh, professional chef turned author and TV personality. He's someone who I think a lot of people in the restaurant world admired, read, watched. Um, I know a lot of people that I've spoken to since the news of his death uh, broke, have been profoundly affected by this. And and I know that you're one of them because we've talked about it. Uh, Nathan, let me just turn this over to you. What did Anthony Bourdain, how did Anthony Bourdain sort of shape your career in the restaurant industry? This was one of those pieces of news that just hit and then no one, no one really knew how to react and accept it and, and kind of talk about it for a little bit. I woke up uh, the morning uh, that it happened. I read the news in a really weird spot in a sports blog of all things. Um, and then I just sat there for a while, and and it it slowly started to dawn on me the the impact that um, Bourdain had on my li- my life. 
I, you know, obviously I was a fan, you know, kind of really enjoyed watching the shows, reading all this stuff. I, I was not the type of fan that would go, you know, when he was in Houston, I was not going to go, you know, follow him around and try to meet him and take a photo with him. You know, more than anything, I, I'm not the uh, celebrity guy, so I wasn't going to try to hunt him down and do all that. I wanted to leave him alone. Uh, but, you know, when I found out what happened, man, you start to think back and you just sit there in silence for several hours um, just to the realization that he really shaped my life. I think I was 15 when my mother bought me Kitchen Confidential. I was working in a deli and a Randall's of all places, uh, you know, frying chicken, you know, cutting deli meats, making those absolutely terrible potatoes. Uh, of course, I didn't realize they were terrible at the time, but, you know, uh, you know, that was a restaurant to me. Uh, and my my mother was like, oh, my son's working in a restaurant, kind of. Uh, so she she had read that this this book came out and thought I would enjoy it. So and I did. And it completely shaped my view on restaurants and, and what working in them would and could be like. And it was just this this window into an industry that. I only partially knew existed. Um, and then from there, you know, that got me because I didn't necessarily enjoy my job in the Randall's Deli, obviously. Uh, but, you know, that book, I it, it was this this it was this idea of, you know, a, a type of people. Um, and it's not the rock star celebrity things that didn't exist at the time. I think the Food Network had kind of existed, but it was was not the 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 celebrity chef. It was the the emeralds of the world at that time. Um, so that had nothing to do with it. It was just the, the personality and the soul of the, the industry that he kind of wrote about that really, you know, spoke to me. Um, so, you know, it made me keep, keep wanting to, to work in the industry. Made me keep wanting to, to grow, um, you know, as, as a person, as somebody wanted to cook as a, you know, at that time as a potential chef and, um, you know, from there on, I grew, and man, when he started doing the TV shows, when when um, he started doing the travel shows and stuff like that, I can tell you, I would sit there for hours and watch him travel around, you know, drink with people, explain their cultures, you know, and not be a jerk about it. Just let them tell their culture, let them tell who they are, and explain. And I just, you know, he was he was kind of your hero. Everybody I knew would be like, "That's the." best job in the world you know hey you know and michael apologize hey look at this guy he's not an asshole even though he kind of was but not you know not to them uh he was he was an asshole to people who deserved it um yeah he he had a penchant for picking well-timed celebrity fights right first rachel ray and then he made up with rachel ray and then he went after guy fietti for a little while yeah he, he picked fights with people i wanted to pick fights with that was the best thing like he 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 complained at Yelp. He complained at the 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 chefs that I couldn't stand. Um, it was like if I had a, a platform to to yell at these people, he did it for me, and that that made me really happy. And I didn't know, like I did, I I couldn't explain that at the time, uh, but I can now. And a lot of this just you know kind of dawned on me after after I learned he he died because I didn't know how important he was to my life until he was gone. And that man, it it was, you know, it just 
took a really long time for me to to understand that. So I I do um, I don't want to linger too much on this, but but I did want to touch on one one aspect of this, which of course uh, that he took his own life, and that uh, the pressures of performing and meeting expectations in the culinary world uh, does drive people to suicide. Uh, this is something that Kat Kinsman has written about pretty extensively. She started an organization called Chefs with Issues. Uh, David Chang wrote an episode or recorded an episode of his new podcast where he talks extensively about his own struggles with mental health and seeking therapy and, and making not just the time to, to talk to a therapist, but, but spending uh, a lot of money at a time, even before he was making a lot of money on, you know, meeting with, uh, not just a therapist, but a, uh, a psychiatrist that, that did talk therapy and, and prescribed medicine um, to try to help him overcome his own issues with uh, depression and anxiety. And, and so what I, I, I do want to say is that uh, there are resources out there for people who are struggling with these issues. If, if, if nothing else comes from uh, Anthony Bourdain's suicide, I, I hope it's that uh, there's a greater awareness of the resources that are available for people. Uh, I know that they can be difficult to access, but I'll, I'll dig up a couple of local resources for people and I'll link to them uh, in the culture map article that goes along with this podcast. But uh, it's been a, it's been a tough couple of weeks for a lot of people and a lot of people who admired Anthony Bourdain's career and, and the things that he said and certainly the way that he, you know, he came to Houston for parts unknown and ate it Himalaya and ate it Burns barbecue and went to a quinceanera and had a Vietnamese crawfish boil with the, the principal of uh, wisdom high school and, and met with the, the farmers from planet forward. I mean, it was just a, it was a really nice perspective on the city that I think it's, it's more as Houstonians know it right as a, a diverse welcoming place and it's not necessarily just you know big hotels and fancy restaurants and so i if nothing else i i appreciated him for that yeah and and on that i i've i've described the industry to a lot of people as as a disease um you know even if you want out um it kind of draws you back in you it's hard to it's hard to lead a normal life after you've you've owned a restaurant or opened a restaurant. Uh, you know, you worked in this industry for 10, 10 years. Um, it kind of changes your personality. It changes who you are. It changes your the hours you live. Um, and that cuts both ways. I normally say that as a joke to people to explain why, you know, people who who work in this industry tend to stay in the industry and tend to, to try to open new restaurants and do new things even after they've you know, fail time and time again. Uh, but, it, you know, it cuts both ways. It, it, it is kind of like an addiction and it, it does, it does cause people issues and it does change people's. And it also, it, it, it attracts a certain type of people. Um, so if, if you are having struggles, if you are having issues, which a lot of people in this industry can have, and, you know, I've had, you know, friends that have, um, had issues that have had really bad struggles that have led them to, you know, decisions that have either ultimately killed them or, or 
you know, um, have them kill themselves. So, you know, if you're having those issues, please, um, you know, I, I know this is really stupid to say, but, you know, do whatever you can to, to try to help yourself or to, um, yeah, it's hard and it's hard to ask for help. And, yeah, and exactly. so I, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to put the burden on someone who's struggling to know how to ask for help. Um, but you know, we, we do all need to kind of check in with each other and look out for each other. And, and I do appreciate the people who have touched base with me and, and I've enjoyed those conversations with people. So I at least understand that you're not alone. Um, especially in this industry, but even outside the industry, um, and, and don't be afraid to, to ask for help and, um, to, to, to seek help out if you can. And Hey guys, if you have friends in the industry, just, you know, be friends with them and, and try to do whatever you can. You know, if you do notice they're an issue, but if you don't notice it, then, you know, don't yeah. feel bad. Well, it's a serious topic and I'm, yeah, and I'm we glad could do, we could do multiple we could, podcasts. We on could, this. we could, right. We could spend multiple shows on this, but I, I do want to move on. Um, because there's, there's good news in this world too. Um, David Keck, our, our old friend who has been on the friend of the show. He's been on the podcast before, uh, our local master sommelier, who is a partner in Goodnight hospitality. Uh, so far they have only opened Goodnight Charlie's the Montrose honky tonk. Uh, but when David and, uh, Felipe Riccio, who is the, the chef for Goodnight hospitality were on the show. Uh, they did acknowledge that they were overqualified to just run a honky tonk, and they did acknowledge that there was a hole in the ground next to Goodnight Charlie's that was the sign of their next project. And now we know what those next projects are going to be. Uh, it's going to be three things. The first is called Montrose Cheese and Wine, which is, as its name suggests, a wine and cheese shop, uh, a casual restaurant called Rosie Cannonball, and a fine dining restaurant called March. It's going to be kind of a showcase for uh, Felipe's interest in Mediterranean food and David's mastery of all things wine. Uh, I want to focus on March for the purposes of this conversation because I am highly intrigued by the idea of a 28-seat fine dining restaurant in the heart of Montrose devoted to uh, a very modern conception of Mediterranean cuisine, uh, Felipe is certainly very well trained. He has studied and stodged in Italy, France, Spain, uh, most prominently at uh, Osteria Francescana, which is arguably the most famous Italian restaurant in the world. Uh, Nathan, let me let me just put it to you. Are you this this should open right around the time you return to Houston sometime next year? Uh, are you excited about a fine dining concept from David and Felipe? I am. Where did Felipe work in Houston before? So Felipe's got a pretty good resume. He's worked at uh, Reef and the Passing Provisions, and he spent some time as a bartender at Camerata. That's where he and David, uh, I guess, started their professional relationship. That's right. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about him. I haven't had his food personally, uh, but I've, I've talked to a few people who, who kind of understand his background, and uh, they've been very excited about him, which has made me excited about it. Um, I'm also very excited about the, um, fact that, uh, David's going to require all his servers to have some mastery 
uh, wine knowledge and uh, I believe a certification of some sorts. Um, yeah, I don't know if they've fully decided what, but but the idea is that the the staff will be very well trained. Yeah, in the wine list, which, which is, if you know what David's experience was at Camerata, is not a surprise. Yeah, so at minimum they're going to be incredibly uh, in touch with the wine list and be able to, you know, really hopefully pair um, dishes with the wine, just you know, up there with the best restaurants in the city. If not, you know, maybe even better. So that's really exciting. Um, and then, you know, it's just crazy they're opening three concepts at the same time. You know, we kind of joke that anyone who does that's stupid. Um, it's not as bad, obviously, since they're all in the same building. But uh, And then one's a 28-seater, so it's not really that big. But. Yeah, and I assume that they will roll out in stages. I assume they won't all open at the exact same time. They'll, they'll open over the course of a couple of months, I suspect. I would hope so, but we'll see. Um, but I'm definitely excited, and and uh, I am obviously the most excited about March. That uh, intrigues me the most, being able to sit down in a really small environment and just have a blow-you-away meal um, is always a lot of fun, as we experienced uh, this, this past weekend. Uh, but being able to do that in the city, you know, we no longer have Oxheart. We still have Pass, um, but March, I think, can fill a void that um, Oxheart left. Yeah, and I mean, I like the past. I like dining to the past, but the thing about, I, I I don't think those guys kind of cook with any specific sort of regional perspective, right? They just, it's kind of their creative take on whatever's inspired them at the moment, and sometimes it can be a little bit off the wall. I think the nice thing about March is that Felipe uh, will be drawing from, a, I mean, the Mediterranean is is a very diverse and broad area, but that there will be a focus to it, I think, that will be interesting. And maybe something that we haven't seen since Oxart closed, or, or maybe even, you know, because Oxart was sort of casual and, and you could go there in, you know, jeans and a button down. I think um, I think March is going to be a little bit more formal, a little bit more polished. It'll be interesting to see how that all comes together. Yeah, and he, like you said, he's, he did a lot of staging in Italy, correct, Felipe? Yeah. So... Uh, also Spain. He's Spain, France, Italy. He's he's very well traveled. He, he's got that whole area. Um, as, as you've heard me complain, um, Houston's missing a lot of Italian flavors. Um, so I'm def- doubly excited for that. Obviously, uh, uh, Spain flavors, pretty excited about. But of course, BCN has that relatively covered, so I can't complain about the lack there. Um, but, you know, combining the two, I, I think will be very... Um, very good, very exciting, and I think it'll make for something that'll have they'll be able to have a lot of fun with wine, uh, kind of go all over the world with wine to match with the food, and uh, really have a lot of fun. All right, and then I do want to just briefly note a couple of recent openings, starting with Pitch 25, Brian Ching's new soccer bar. This has been a hot spot, especially because we're in the middle of the World Cup. Uh, I saw a picture of the... Uh, I saw a picture of the space from the uh, Mexico versus Germany match on Sunday where it just looked absolutely filled. Uh, what's nice about this bar is that it's not just a, a celebrity slapping his name on something. Uh, he has joined forces with the Kirby Group. They own Holman Draft Hall, Wooster's Garden, and Heights Beer Garden. Uh, so it's a, it's a mixture of 
the kind of beer garden concept that those guys have uh, really perfected. I mean, in my opinion, uh, some of some of my favorite uh, bars to open in the last couple of years uh, with uh, some soccer elements, including a, a pitch where they're going to hold matches from time to time. Um, I don't know. You you saw the pictures. You've seen some of the crowds. I know you haven't been there, but uh, pitch twenty five. It looks really cool. It looks like a lot of fun, and I'm sure they're just absolutely packed during the World Cup. They were very smart to open um, right when the World Cup started. They can just get a ton of people in, make a lot, pretty much all their money back. Right, uh, you know, the first couple weeks, maybe get their investment back. You know, within the first month or two that they're open. The place is massive. It's 25,000 square feet. There's not many bars in the city that big other than maybe, you know, places like Heights Beer Garden and um, a couple of Yeah, there's like a couple ones. of country music dance halls that are pretty big. But yeah, but, but yeah, it's even by, I mean, it's right around the corner from Truck Yard and that's 15,000 square feet and that feels huge. Yeah, it, it, it's massive. So the fact, I mean, we're talking about, you know, they're, they can play soccer in it. Does that kind of tell you something? So Right. Um, I'm sure it's only half a field, but still, that's it's like a quarter field. It's like yeah. four on four. Yeah, whatever. If people could play an actual game of sports in it, then it's a massive bar. So, um, but that also means it's fun. So, go get drunk, kick a soccer ball, and and have some fun. Though, though, don't get drunk. I didn't say that. You know, well, go get tipsy. Yeah, go get pleasant. Yes. Uh, and then Calle Onze, uh, a New Mexican restaurant from the owners of Edison and Patton. Uh, located next to 8 Row Flint on 11th Street, thus the name. Uh, it's This is an interesting restaurant. They do uh, scratch-made flour and corn tortillas. They're doing some traditional stuff. I mean, the stuff you would expect a, Mex- a Tex-Mex restaurant to serve, fajitas, enchiladas, uh, but they're also doing chorizo and nopales ravioli, and they have 400 different agave spirits on the back bar. Uh, this uh, This article blew up for culture map over the weekend. So I haven't, I haven't eaten there yet, uh, but I've seen the space. It's really nice. Uh, I like Edison and Patton quite a bit. And so I'm looking forward to my first meal at Calle Onze. The design of the restaurant is very cool. Um, I love the kind of industrial chic, uh, kind of made to, to patina and get old while looking really cool design. Uh, the menu sounds really cool. I like that they're doing that mid-level uh, restaurant where the the food's better than it probably needs to be type of concept. Um, I have my reservations about the Nopales ravioli, uh, but I, I love to be proven wrong. Um, but I'll, I'll have to put an asterisk on that for the time being. Um, but the rest of the menu sounds pretty pretty good. Uh, the, the cocktails look like they're going to be really good. Um, I'm pretty sure that's going to be a, a good success for, for the Heights. Absolutely. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Nathan, for our restaurants of the week, I want to start by talking about the meal we had at Robard's Steakhouse up in the woodlands. Uh, certainly no shortage of steakhouses in Houston, but Robards has stepped things up, stepped things up recently. Uh, they have a new chef, David Morris, who has worked at a number of places, including uh, the Princess Hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is 
one of this country's premier resorts. He's also worked in Vegas quite a bit. Uh, they've redecorated. Uh, I'd say they've sort of lightened and brightened and made it more comfortable. Uh, and I will say, uh, not only did they uh, pay for our dinner, but they sent us uh, a Suburban to take us from Montrose to the Woodlands. And so, uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, but uh, we had a pretty good meal at Robards, I would say. Yeah, Robards is uh, definitely rolling out the red carpet, not just for us, but for any of their guests. It is... Um uh, they they opened up the bank book and and uh, told the people in charge to you know to grab all the gold they needed to make that place swanky and um, they did they were not afraid to uh, spend it's about the most expensive uh, linens and and tableware I've seen in a restaurant outside of probably Manhattan in a really long time yeah just the quality of the serving ware like we had a a beef tartare that came in this massive, had to have been hand-thrown bowl. I mean, just that that piece of uh, that that piece of uh, that piece of pottery was probably a four hundred dollar piece of pottery that they're serving. Right. You know, tartare. They're serving a twenty-five dollar beef tartare. In. Yeah, it, it's it's just crazy, uh, and I mean, it's beautiful. It, it the the presentation of this beef tartare was gorgeous. Um, yes, I got all of the Instagram likes for posting it. Oh, you did? Yeah, all of them. Um, did you stay up all night watching it? No, no. I, I just I let it go to bed, and then I'm pleasantly surprised in the morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the, the presentations on a lot of their stuff were very good. The, the plateware was fantastic. Crystal glassware, even for the water. Um, right. Server, was, who, server who really knew the menu and... and yeah, was you, able to make recommendations about specific dishes. You could tell all the servers were were on top of it. Um, really the, solid uh, bread that was made in house. Uh, bar drinks were a lot better than most of the bars in the Woodlands. Yeah, the quality of the cocktails was good. They were they weren't too sweet. They were nicely balanced. Um, you know, I think, and and I like that they have like a different selection of different kinds of wagyu, different kinds of steaks. Uh, a pretty ambitious, uh, you know, range of seafood offerings too. A bunch of apps, a bunch of shareables. Um, generally speaking, I thought the quality of the food was good, but it seemed like in a couple of dishes they, like the ingredients were really good, but the execution was maybe off just a little bit. Yeah, and of course, the um, to be fair, the uh, the chef, what was his name? Uh, David Morris. David Morris was not in that night, so we did not get the the full-on chef experience but Uh, he's also the area executive chef for the howard hughes corporation so i don't know how often he's there because he's got a couple other properties to oversee yeah i just like to give the the asterisk um because i don't know how i don't know if they're done training or not but the uh yeah i i will uh, uh agree that the ingredients were were up there with the best in the in this city for for sure um, they had Akayoshi uh, steaks. They had uh, their steaks in general are house dry aged um, seafood. They had these Godzilla prawns that were huge. Uh, very good beef, very good produce. A lot of really great things. Some dishes were really good. A couple of dishes like the prawns. The prawns were beautiful. They were a little overcooked, 
Um, but the flavors uh, were very good. Right. They did that Wagyu nigiri where I think there was just like too much rice that it sort of covered up the flavor of the beef. Yeah, they did this Wagyu nigiri with the really beautiful A5, I think. Um, but it just had a little bit too much rice. So then, uh, but I think they're I think they're figuring that one out. It seemed like that was still a um, an in progress dish. Right. But I, I mean, the best dish we had was that uh, the lamb dish with the pasta, which just right. The lamb was like spot on, nicely cooked, nicely seasoned. Yeah, the lamb pasta was great. Lamb was easily my favorite. Um, the desserts were were pretty good. Uh, they're very pretty, very photogenic. Um, the, if the donuts weren't too sweet, I think that would have been really good. Yeah. The donuts were a little bit sweet. I thought that the fresh peaches with them were, were really solid. Uh, but no, this is, this is, you know, the Woodlands is a competitive dining market, especially for steakhouses. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a restaurant that's trying to make its mark. And I, and I saw on their website, uh, they will take 20% off your bill through the end of July. So, or at least 20% off your food doesn't include alcohol, but uh, if that doesn't lure people up there, yeah, from that, Houston, that, then that's a that's a legit deal. That's a good deal. They're using some some crazy ingredients. It is an expensive restaurant, but so is every other, you know, high end steakhouse right now. Um, you, yeah, that's a good chance to go up there, try some some of these fancy wagyu's or this akayoshi steaks. Get twenty percent off that. You're not going to get that anywhere else. And they're doing that because you know it's a brand new concept. Obviously, the the name is the same, but it's a pretty it's a different restaurant. Yeah, it's a totally different restaurant than the one that we experienced a couple. You're of you're going to get some some great service up there too. The Woodlands is one of these areas where service is almost more important than the food in a lot of aspects. Um, so that's probably something that they're really going to focus on. So that's not something you can get in a lot of Houston restaurants. So if that's something you 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 know would like to experience. Um, Definitely, definitely worth the drive up there for that. All right, and then I want to move on from Robards to Dream Tacos. This is the new uh, Greenway Plaza area taco concept from the owner of Jenny's Noodle House. I know you and I visited separately, but we went only a couple of days apart. Uh, I will say I was somewhat skeptical. I have never been a big fan of Jenny's Noodle House because I feel like it's kind of... Um, under seasoned Vietnamese food, but I actually really enjoyed my tacos at dream tacos. I thought the tortillas were good. I thought the, the way that they've kept the fillings kind of focused on mostly Mexican type ingredients. They haven't gone too far in the torchies direction, uh, was solid. I thought the homemade salsas were pretty good. Uh, but you are more of a tortilla snob than I am. So what did you think of dream tacos? So the, Dream Tacos overall was was pretty good. There's very few, you know, taco restaurants, like actual full-on restaurants, that I would really give my stamp of approval to. Uh, I would definitely say this is worth a visit. Um, the flour tortillas are awesome. They make them fresh every day. The corn tortillas are, are very good for a restaurant. They're getting them delivered every day from a tortilla. The, uh, the Mexican tacos were pretty good. Um, and then the, I'm not the biggest breakfast taco guy, but those, their egg tacos were delicious. Um, they're on those house made, uh, flour tortillas. Um, they had a tortilla, tortilla soup that was very good. It almost had like a pozole type flavor to it. Um, their salsas were great. 
They had like four or five different types. Yeah, they're doing a spicy avocado one that I really, really The like. spicy avocados are house salsa. That was really good. That was my favorite. Um, and they're doing like a pineapple-y... There was like a sweet one that I actually liked more than I thought I was going I didn't to. get that one, but they had a couple of, you know, standard tomato red ones, you know, of different varying spicinesses. I, I like the... The spiciest one wasn't spicy, you know, enough for the spiciest one. It was plenty spicy, but it was very good also. Um, the chips and salsa, or the chips, queso, and salsa were okay. I wouldn't yeah, run out I, and grab I, them. So I thought the queso was a little bit thick, uh, and that's what I told uh, Scott Tranweaver, who's one of the owners, when, when he asked me about it. I thought the guacamole was pretty solid. Yeah, I the, think it's hard to mess up guacamole. The the guy dining with me loved the chips and salsa and queso, so um, I thought it was just okay. But I'm I'm more of a nitpicky queso fanatic. Um, the tacos overall were, were were good. I would go back. It's close to my house. I, w- I would go again for sure. Um, the you know weirdly enough they have one that's just refried beans and a flour tortilla. That was good. It was just refried beans and a flour tortilla. I would actually order that and pay money to eat it. And I probably would have never thought that that's something I would say. Um, what else was good? They had churros, uh, but I don't think they're on the menu anymore. Yeah, I think the churros are still working. Uh, but you can ask for them probably and just make them make it for you. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, overall, I, I enjoyed the restaurant. I think they'll probably even get it better. They seem really pumped up about making the food good. They do have a, a few gringo white people tacos on there with your yeah, buffalo. I had, I had one with a fried chicken tender in it uh, that was fine, but I just think that the the overall, the the more Mexican ones, I had a, had a shrimp, a grilled shrimp one that was actually really good. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I'll go back there for. All right. I don't mean to cut you off, but we are running long. Uh, we have Veronica and John Avia ready to go. So I'm going to say that's it for the restaurants of the week. Nathan. Thank you very much. It was fun. I'll be right back. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by 8th Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. It's been really fun to watch 8th Wonder evolve from its sort of humble beginnings in a little corner of a warehouse you now a gigantic warehouse, the huge backyard that they call Wonder World, where you can go before sports games, especially with uh, soccer season and baseball season heating up. Eighth Wonders Brewery is conveniently located uh, within walking distance. You might see my colleague Fred Fowler walking around there. I know it's a favorite spot of his. And there's always something new to try at Eighth Wonder. Like they just released their Procrastinator Session IPA, the official beer of doing nothing. They're going to have their hip-hop series rolling out here in the next little bit. And, you know, you can always count on an 8th Wonder Beer to be refreshing, delicious, and fresh because it's made right here locally all the time. So thank you to 8th Wonder, and here's our interview of the week. I'm joined this week by Veronica and John Avila, the owners of El Burro in the Bowl, a barbecue restaurant in the Conservatory Food Hall. And Henderson and Kane, a new grocery store cafe that just opened up uh, in the old Sixth Ward, and some other stuff that we're going to get into real soon. So let me introduce you one by one so people can hear your voices. 
Veronica, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi there. Thanks for having me. John, how are you? Good, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Uh, I usually kind of like to start at the beginning. John, I know you're the one with the, the more extensive culinary background. You grew up in Houston. How did you, how did you get into professional cooking? Yeah, I grew up in Houston. I was actually uh, born and raised on the east end um, of Houston, um, around Harrisburg and 75th area. Um, my grandparents lived there, and, and that's where our roots were planted in Houston for sure. Uh, my mom's side of the family, though, had a barbecue restaurant uh, started 1960s in Bryan, Texas. And so my first memory is probably um, six, seven years old. Uh, my grandfather cutting a broomstick in half so it'd be the right size for me and my grandmother sewing an apron for me so that I could sweep up uh, bottle caps from uh, around the, the restaurant slash ice house I guess and um, so I was always in restaurants um, once I hit like 12 years old 13 years old I started spending every summer in uh, my uncle's restaurant called El Toro um, and working on his ranch at the same time that was uh, the El Toro actually started, I believe, in the Bay Area here, and um, they had a location outside of Buffalo, Texas, in Palestine, Texas, and so I'd spend half the day working in the restaurant, half the day working on the ranch, tending fence or tending the cows, and so, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, later on, I, was in a, I did accounting work for a number of years, uh, and then on a whim, I left Houston, sold a lot of my stuff, moved to Austin. Uh, and started working with uh, an excellent chef, Melissa Brinkman, um, who was starting a new company called the Cake and Spoon Baking Company. Uh, I was in her kitchen for th uh, almost three years, and it was very, um, it was very intense. Uh, she was very gracious and very uh, generous with me. I can I, there was probably a lot of times that she could have uh, uh, found someone uh, that that was better than I was, but she really was a great lady in teaching me everything she knew, um, and uh, it was a great experience for me. Um, yeah. And then eventually, you made your way to Franklin Barbecue. Exactly. the uh, The desserts that we were making at um, Cake and Spoon uh, became the desserts at Franklin Barbecue. Um, so to this day, if you go to Franklin, uh, they're the same desserts coming from Chef Brinkman. And so we were working in the same commissary kitchen as they were just starting the business. And um, I think uh, Melissa uh, gave me, a, you know, was, was really kind. And uh, as they were looking for people, um, gave a recommendation. Um, we later found out that um, Aaron's family grew up in Bryan, Texas. Uh, my grandfather played the violin. That was one of his things. Uh, since the 1940s, he was playing the violin. And Aaron's grandfather uh, was the man who sold sheet music in Bryan, Texas. So uh, my grandfather bought sheet music from him. And there was some connection there. I don't think that, uh, you know, I didn't know Aaron before that or anything. But, uh, but there was just a, a kind of connection there that was really great. Yeah, so it was almost like kismet that you guys were going to Yeah, and, and then you, you throw in someone like John Lewis, who is excellent at his craft and just a genuinely nice guy. And it, it really was a really good time for me and um, a really good learning experience for me as well. And then Veronica, how did how did you get in the picture? When did when did you and John meet, and, and how did he sort of recruit you into this world? <laughs> um, oh gosh, it was probably hearing his story about his grandfather and their and their uh, barbecue restaurant. It kind of brought back memories of my own grandfather, who didn't have a barbecue restaurant, but actually had a Mexican restaurant in El Paso. And uh, him and my grandmother ran the restaurant together. And at some point, I mean, I never really knew the restaurant. I was much too young. 
Um, but at some point, they bought a food truck. This was kind of their retirement plan. And every weekend, um, they would sell menudo, menudo, tamales, pozole. And so I remember every Saturday, we'd go to the market and visit them. Um, and those are... So as he was talking about all this stuff, I just kind of fell in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole idea of us having our own place together. Um, I think it was probably instant. Um, and from that point forward was talk about how we would have our own place. We met through a mutual friend um, at um, in the old Sixth Ward, as a matter of fact, yeah. at, at, at a coffee shop and um, and just really hit it off. Um, and yeah, she was at Gensler at the time uh, working as, a, as an architect and designer. And um, and I was just about to leave for New York to go work on the project out there. Um, she was in Macau, China and flying out of Hong Kong. She would stop in, or she would have a layover in LA. I guess is that right? Maybe in LA. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was usually San Francisco or Chicago, and so every now and then I'd ask them to um, fly me through New York instead of instead of Chicago, so I could go visit him. And so we started dating and long distance. That was yeah, <laughs> and and uh, we spent a lot of time eating food and working on the project in New York together. We'd we'd hit up Veronica for design ideas, ask her questions about what we were building, and then. It just worked out really well. It was kind of an opportunity to work together um, and start dating each other. And that was it. And so the business was born, I think, after that. Uh, and then so you decided to come home, to come back to Houston, uh, to open Alboro in the Bull. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I think you're the only original tenant left at Conservatory. All of the the opening tenants have, have moved on. Correct. Uh, what do you think it is about your concept that has allowed you to be successful in that space where maybe it wasn't the right fit for, for other people? Um, I think simply stated, brisket and queso. I think the, uh, you know... I, I, I mean, two great tastes that taste great <laughs> together. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's the opportunity. Um, we took the opportunity to kind of meld the two. Um, uh, you know, in our perspective, Texas barbecue is very German and very Mexican, right? So um, just like Central Texas, you find places like New Braunfels right next to places like San Marcos. Uh, Grun is right next to San Antonio. And so, you know, an opportunity, and, and that's what we grew up on. We grew up, you know, with both of those cultures combined together to create our trips to Lockhart, to eating sausage in barbecue restaurants, to brisket, to fajitas, to queso. I mean, it all, it all is in the same realm for us. And, um, you know, that was our concept. We put it together and it was really good. I think, you know, downtown, when, when conservatory started, downtown was really starting to grow as far as the number of residents that were living in downtown. It seems like more people live in downtown Houston than ever before. And, um, we really try to take advantage of the opportunity to grow with the the neighborhood, I guess you could say. And um, we've we've worked hard, man. You know, um, I don't know if there's a secret to it necessarily, but we just kind of tried to to offer things that we enjoy, things that we like in a way that we would like to be offered those things. Well, and I do think there is something to this idea that you were blending uh, Texas barbecue and Mexican cuisine and Tex-Mex all kind of together not that not that it it needed someone to sort of invent it but just the, the thought of like oh yeah let's slice the brisket and put it in a taco instead of on a on a bun or or between two pieces of bread i mean 
it, it's not like such a revolutionary idea, but but it it just it hadn't really been done until you started doing it. I well, agree. if I could take credit for that one, um, <laughs> being from El Paso, I mean, barbecue isn't really a big thing. It wasn't until I met John and he started cooking for me that I really was introduced to it. I mean, I remember the first brisket he made. I didn't want him to slice it. I wanted him to shred it. And um, I used to make flautas for us with that, that same brisket. I mean, that's also why we started using the beef fat, um, because both of our families were using um, beef rather than pork in our tamales. And, and that's really where a lot of those ideas came from. I think I just reminded him of those, but they were always there. So beef tallow, <laughs> beef tallow and things like that used in the tamales, used even in the tortillas and stuff is, is makes a lot of sense. It wasn't always bacon fat that was on the stove, you know what I mean? In the, in the metal can, it was, it was oftentimes beef fat. Um, and so, yeah, and, and that's true. I th- it's very true. It's, I mean, El Paso is, is, man, it's such a great town. It's such a great city. Um, and when you, when you get into people's kitchens and people's homes and have their food, you really get a good uh, <laughs> chance to, to see how, they're using a lot of the same things in different ways. Um, and, and, and that shredded brisket, I mean, it was almost blasphemy to me, right? <laughs> and then when I had it, I was like, wait a second, this is excellent, you know? And it's, it is wrapped in a flauta, or it is on, in, in, in a taco. Um, and so, yeah, that, 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 it made a lot of sense, and it was really good. And, I mean, do you, where do you, where do you sort of see the, the future of, a burrow in the bowl because it, it certainly seems like, you know, there's so many new barbecue joints opening, um, but people are very receptive to them. I mean, have you thought about your own brick and mortar? Is that kind of what's next for you guys? We have. As a matter of fact, we've been approached by a couple of, of really nice folks um, on the East end. Um, so we're kind of in the process of making a decision on where we'd like to, to plant our roots. Um, but a brick and mortar for is definitely, uh, what we see in the future. We want to do the full package. You know, uh, we do want to do smoked salt, uh, margaritas, um, and, um, mojitos and I'm sorry, uh, what is the, I'm sorry, the smoked tequila. Oh, mezcal. Mezcal, (laughs) right. Um, so we want to have, you know, a selection of mezcal, selection of tequilas, um, drinks to go along with 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 the food. Um, expand the uh, the the Mexican slash Tex Mex menu um, in the building, and and really kind of push forward also with new sausage ideas, new chorizo, house made chorizos, things like that that really make a lot of sense to us. That really are really closely connected to barbecue in our opinion, and so brick and mortar is a is a good opportunity, a good stage for us to to perform on. So we'll say roughly in the next year or two. I think tentatively that's a really good, really good, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and then not to like not linger on that, <laughs> but we have, we have other topics to hit. Uh, you just opened Henderson and Kane, which is like a grocery store and kind of a quickie mart, but also sells <laughs> barbecue and pastries and has really good coffee. Um, how did that come together? I guess let's, let's kind of start there. Yeah, so that loops us back around to when Veronica and I first met in, uh, in, in the Historic Sixth Ward. Um, when we met, we were introduced by a friend because I was, ha- was going to do something in that building. I uh, had my hands on the building and had planned on turning it into a store, selling food out of it, selling barbecue out of it. And I needed some help with the design and with you know, trying to realize what it would take to actually get the building uh, brought up to code and all that kind of stuff. So 
in comes Veronica, who knew all that. She made drawings for it. She had it put together. It was giving me ideas. And then New York called me probably six months earlier than, than I had planned on. Um, so I thought I still had maybe six months to a year before I was going to be in New York. Um, but they called me, said they had, you know, the Barclays Center was going up. We were going to put a concept on the first floor. Um, and they needed me there immediately. So I had to walk away from that project. Um, went to Brooklyn. Um, did our thing there, you know, did some consulting in the interim, um, came back home, uh, put together the uh, project in the conservatory. And one day we happened to be driving by the store, saw that the tenants that were in it before had closed it down. And lo and behold, the landlord is standing out in front. So slammed the brakes, pulled over on the side of the road, introduced myself. He said he remembered me. Um, the uh it's a family owned uh building and so the brother came to the conservatory to have the food the next day and then the following day he called me and said that he'd like to work with us and do something there um so it was a great opportunity to get back into the building it had some work already done to it it had already been brought up to code um and had a lot of new things in it that were great for the business and we just couldn't pass it up it was a great opportunity for us to really come back around again uh, I saw I saw on social media that you have received your uh, permit to sell beer and wine, so that's a good sign. <laughs> we have we have. Uh, how's the response been so far? I mean, you're about a what about a month in, I guess. We have, um, you know, we're in soft opening. We kind of opened the doors without really much fanfare, um, just kind of really focusing on letting the people that are right next to us know the neighbors, basically, because it is in the middle of the neighborhood. Um, kind of listening to what the neighbors have to say. Uh, we have um, a survey at hkgeneralstore.com, and we ask people to please, you know, tell us what you'd like to see in the store. Tell us what you're going to the store for now, um, what you'd like to buy from us, and what, you know, what, what you'd like us to have on our shelves. And so we've been slowly curating the store in that sense. We um, brought in an excellent guy by the name of Jeremy Masters, who's our lead barista. Um, he's got a long history of doing work with coffee in Houston, and so we have a full espresso bar. We're baking pe pastries every morning. Um, we're putting together a deli case now. We got our first beer and wine delivery uh, just a couple of days ago, which is excellent. Um, and we do have the permit to serve uh, growlers and crowlers, so that'll be coming really soon as well. We're working with uh, Grauman Farm out of Tomball um, to bring in eggs and milk and drinking yogurts and a lot of really cool stuff from them. Um, we got fresh blueberries from Bleakwood Farms out in the Piney Woods of East Texas just a couple of days ago, which is really exciting for us too. So, you know, we're just kind of putting these little elements together a little bit at a time. Um, I, I, I don't want to think of it as a specialty store. Um, you know, we do have vegan options. We do have uh, things that we're bringing in from local farms. But I think we're past the point where these things are really considered special. It's, it's every day for a lot of people now. And um, to have these things available to the neighborhood every day um, consistently and at good prices, I think, just makes a lot of sense for the, the space, for the neighborhood, for our business, and a good opportunity to also serve this barbecue. Um, which, you know, growing up in the East End, and I, I think it's all over Houston, um, there's always been these little tiny shops that sold um, burgers and chopped beef sandwiches and maybe a fish plate. And they also had a cooler with sodas. Yeah, and, I mean, it's kind of the modern Stanton City Bites. I mean, not that, it, not, or Lankford Grocery. I mean, not that, not that those places aren't still doing a good job or aren't still out sure, there, but sure. 
but you're kind of putting your own spin on a, a very beloved Houston tradition from my perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think every neighborhood had a store like this, you know, and, and, and the, I think the chains kind of came along and, and there weren't so many of those left. But when you see these places like Stanton's that are still around, that are still serving the community, um, they're really good people. They've been around for a long time and folks drive in to see them because their products are really good. And so... Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a bit of nostalgia in it. I mean, John and I love going out to the middle of nowhere to just find a tiny little town to, to you know, pick up antiques. And for me, the old Six Ward is kind of that. You know, we have little kids that come in to buy the, can- the ca- little candy that they want for the day. Um, they get a drink and a soda and pick out a pastry for their parents, and it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is this kind of remarkable neighborhood in the sense that you can see the downtown skyline, I mean, you're right off of Washington Avenue. It's it's very much right in the heart of the city, but you know, it just it it feels a little more suburban. It feels a little slower. It's it's got all the trees. It's got the kind of narrow streets. I mean, it's it just it it's you know, it's like a little quiet pocket in a in a very hectic part of the city. It's it's almost like its own little town in a lot of ways. You know, we we were in awe the other day when we saw uh, an older gentleman come in and order his stuff and a really young guy came in and they hit it off they knew each other's name already they were talking like they were buddies and it was just this this dynamic of uh, you know you see it often you see these young kids running around the neighborhood and it feels safe and you see people walking their dogs every day and and the older talking to the young and you know there, there, there don't seem to be a lot of strangers in the neighborhood and, and it has that feeling of you wave when you see someone, you smile when you see someone. It, when they meet at the store, they often will talk about what's going on in the neighborhood. We've seen that happening already. And so it's not a really good feeling, and it brings back a lot of memories to what my grandfather's place was like in Bryan. And, and like she said, what we do see when we go to these small towns and, and, and hunt down these little general stores. So do you have a vision for kind of how you'd like it to grow uh, over time or, or how you'd like the concept to evolve over the next, say, Six months to a year? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, um, I, I hate to use the word, I seem like, I, I feel like it gets used a lot, but organically is, is, is the best way to describe it. Um, every day that we're open, every time someone comes to visit, and every time we get a chance to have a conversation with our customers and our neighbors, that really leads us in the direction that we want to go. Um, when we see them, when we see the, the farm eggs flying off the shelf, we know that we need to keep buying farm eggs and, and, and offer a lot of them all the time. Same things with the milk. Um, people are really enjoying the barbecue now. So, so we serve, you know, we start by serving the first quarter mile radius around us and then we'll grow from there. Um, there's a lot of folks that work in the area as well who, um, who, you know, come to see us at lunch and then hopefully they'll come on the weekends with their family and their friends because they enjoy it enough. Um, or if they're going to events in downtown, for example, 4th of July is coming in. As we all know, 6th Ward neighborhood is packed uh, for the fireworks display. And so this is a great opportunity for folks that don't live in the neighborhood to come and see us. And that's actually going to be when our grand opening is, is 4th of July. Um, and um, yeah, you know, if, if it stays a simple store and that's the only location and it's there to serve the neighborhood, I think that we would be completely satisfied. Um, anything beyond that, we would always want to make sure that we keep it true to its roots. Uh, but we don't really see it, at least for myself, I don't really see it being a chain or a franchise or anything. I don't really see it going beyond where it is now um, because I think it's most authentic where it is currently. Yeah. Uh, and then... I would say, 
you know, taking your barbecue restaurant to a brick and mortar and opening a, a combination grocery store and cafe would, would keep most people pretty busy, uh, but that's not all that you're doing. Uh, you've been very quietly for over a year now uh, working on a bakery concept in the East End, and so uh, I'm hoping that we can talk about that in depth for what, as far as I know, is the first time publicly. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I know if you, if you talk about it, it it's almost like you actually have to do it. <laughs> so we've been, uh, we've been working with uh, the greater East End management district um, and city of Houston for a couple of years now um, to develop uh, businesses on the East End uh, navigation esplanade is what it is uh, directly in front of Ninfas. And um, it's taken quite a while. My wife's been working hard on drawings and with the city to get those drawings approved. Uh, it is in a public right-of-way. It is a shipping container concept, which, you know, we do see shipping containers around the city. But to have it in a public right-of-way on city property has been, has been a challenge. Uh, Veronica did an excellent job at getting it done. And it has been approved. Um, and it's the concept currently... <laughs> The concept currently is uh, called Sweet Mary's. Uh, we call it Sweet Mary's because it is a panaderia, a bakery, uh, and my grandmother's name was Maria, uh, or Mary. Um, and uh, the memory of her baking uh, stuff and you know making desserts for all of her grandchildren who would stand in the line at the kitchen door, and she would give them to us. It was really uh, which his mother actually does now. Which my mother, which my mother does now. That's right. Um, it was just it kind of came together. Um, you know, again, it has been it has taken quite a while just to make sure that the that everything was uh, kosher with the uh, the city of Houston and and that the construction drawings were all where they needed to be and, and get approved. Um, it still is um, in the works, um, but it is a project that that is near and dear to our heart. Um, so we'll see where that leads us. Um, so, yeah. Veronica, let me just ask you: What <laughs> you're, you're putting a bakery in a shipping container and dropping a shipping container, and then installing that in the middle of the esplanade? How does that? <laughs> how does that work exactly? Oh gosh, it it doesn't. It takes three years essentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of the challenges that we faced, you know, are the, is that the um, the property itself is. Uh, <coughs> currently being licensed by the Greater East End Management District. And so we needed to prove to the city that we could actually move the project uh, when that license was over. And um, so there was a lot of things that we had to work around. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we weren't going to give up <laughs> and uh, held true. And so, um, like John said, we did uh, get permits for that. And um, if you'll notice, there has been a little bit of movement out there um, uh, to, to bring it back around, sorry, I, I have to tell a story, but, you know, Burrow and Bull was actually born, um, not on accident, but, but just kind of a side effect of, of, of really trying to engage the, the, um, the Esplanade and the Greater East End Management District. Um, we were home and we were, we had just bought our home right there off of navigation and we noticed that there was not really anything going on in the Esplanade other than once a year they would have the, uh, East End, um, festival east end street festival mm -hmm. and so that was great up you know that was great but i we were wondering why it wasn't busy on fridays and saturdays uh why we didn't see a lot of movement on the weekends and why folks weren't weren't engaging the uh, the esplanade so um we rented a food truck from someone um went out there and started selling food we needed to come up with a name 
we put all of the licensing licensing together, and we decided to call this pop up um, El Burro and the Bull, um, because again it did give us an opportunity to kind of spread our wings with the with the menu, and it was meant to be just a pop up. It was meant to just be a, a short lived concept on the Esplanade to kind of prove to ourselves and to prove to the Greater East End Management District that we could uh, get folks out there. Uh, and we went out there and the first weekend we had a handful of folks show up and it was great, but it wasn't busy. Um, the following weekend we had a few more people show up and we were pretty excited about that, seeing folks walk by. And it was funny because folks would walk by and not really sure what to think about it. Then they'd walk by again a second time. After they smelled it. After they smelled it. <laughs> and then we'd kind of engage them and talk to them. And then we, we would give samples out and then they would, they would buy the food. On the third weekend, it was great because um, I think I believe it was the third or fourth weekend was great because some of the folks from the Greater Eastern Management District happened to come out to show their support. And that day we had approximately 200 folks show up and buy the food and hang out with us and sit at our tables. And right. Sit. It's sort of proof of concept. It really, yeah, it, I mean, it from great. that point forward, every time we'd show up, I mean, sometimes they'd beat the bus, you know, us pulling out, putting out the food truck, they'd already be waiting um, so it was just, I guess, proven. Uh, from there, the Greater East End offered us an opportunity to take on the uh, shipping container project. And I guess it's not very often you have an architect and a chef uh, on the same team. Uh, so for them, it just seemed like the natural step. So what can we expect from Sweet Mary's in terms of like food items or, I mean, is this like, I mean, are there breakfast tacos? Are there kolaches? Like, what are you what are you thinking? Sweet Mary's, you know, in that neighborhood, growing up in that neighborhood, I, I would say like every Sunday we were at the panaderia down the street. We were getting the sweet bread, uh, the Mexican sweet bread. We were getting bags of it, taking it to grandma's house. My mom and dad would sit on the table with grandma and grandpa, drink coffee, hang out. We'd run around with our sweets in our hands. It just it was a way of life. And And in the East End, there were. I would say three to four main bakeries that were around the neighborhood that, you know, you had the one that you went to and that's the one you went to every weekend. And so they died down they, You know, a lot of them died out and, and there are a few now. Um, right, I'm, right. There's El Bolillo on the North side, right. That kind of holds that down for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. But on the East end, I mean, I'm not that familiar with the neighborhood, but I can't think of one. Off well, the there, there is an El Bolillo on Wayside. on Wayside. Okay. Um, and, and listen, the place is packed and it is busy and it is because it is, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. Um, a lot of us grew up with it. So an opportunity to, to go have those things again, to eat those things again, uh, to show up every weekend was just, it was just, I mean, we were just waiting for it. You know, we we're just waiting for opportunities to do this kind of thing. Um, they do an excellent job and that's really, that's really what it's about. It's, it's near and dear to our heart. Um, because it's been a way of life our, our whole childhood to be able to go to these places and grab stuff. And so we want to be able to put it right in the middle of navigation. Our, our little nook um, of the East End right there, I have to say, is, is, is underserved in a lot of ways. We don't have grocery stores right next to us. We don't have, um, a, we, we don't have a lot of things that, that you would find in other neighborhoods. So we do have to drive out to uh, closer to the highway over on 45, further south. Or we do have to drive over to... Um, the Montrose area or to uh, closer to the heights in order to, in order to get a lot of the things that we need. And so every, every opportunity to build something out there um, like El Burro and the Bull, um, which does have Mexican food, but also has something else besides 
Tex-Mex, right? It has, it has other options. And um, same thing with this. This is an opportunity to offer these breads and these uh, sweets to the neighborhood where they you know, they don't have to go anywhere. They could walk over and well, have it with us. I feel like if El Tiempo and Ninfas can exist right next to each other serving, <laughs> uh, no disrespect to either of those businesses, very similar menus. Sure. Uh, that there's room for more than one bakery in the East End. I would agree. I would agree. And, and you know, we went out there and um, we're doing our thing, kind of, you know, uh, giving our presentations and looking over the where the construct, how the construction would go out. And Alex came out. Alex from Ninfa's, uh, exec chef from Ninfa's, came out, a huge smile on his face, giant hug, told us welcome, loves it, can't wait for us to be there and wants to find a way to work together. And so, you know, we've I, I think the neighborhood is so ready for more the neighborhood is so ready to be served um in a lot of ways and that comes from the the people that are from the neighborhood that have been in the neighborhood forever i think it's also coming from the folks that are just moving to the neighborhood too um the east end is a great place it's got more history in it than any other part of houston and people that live there take a lot of pride and they want to be able to ride their bikes down the street and get what they'd like to have uh for lunch breakfast lunch or dinner um they want to walk. They want to not have to leave the area. And, and Houston is becoming a lot, a lot more like that, in my opinion. A lot like New York. You know, in New York, your life is uh, can be within a six block radius because everything you need is there when you're a little, little tiny neighborhood. You know, and so I think that um, we're kind of getting into that direction. So, uh, downtown has been proof of that, in my opinion. So you said there's signs of progress already. <laughs> uh, what is your rough timeline? When, when will, when will we be buying? Uh Pendolce from uh, I would Mary's. I would say within the next year. Again, it, it, you know, everything looks currently like it's it's about a year out. Um, you know, we want to push it as, as fast as we possibly can. Uh, at the same time, we just are you know taking our time with everything. We you know I, I don't know if you've noticed, but we our concepts they take a little longer than a lot of other folks um, to get out into the world. We might start talking about it, and it may take a little longer for them to come out. Uh, but we try to go slow. Um, we try to find great teams to help us bring it to life. Um, and then when that project is assembled, put together, has a great team, we, uh, it's kind of like training wheels. We kind of just, you know, take the training wheels off, let it go, move on to the next thing and, and hopefully, you know, keep offering good stuff. That means a lot to us. Well, we wouldn't want it to be half baked. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, been saving that for the whole yeah, time. I knew it. <laughs> uh, well, John and Veronica, uh, this has been fantastic. I feel like, uh, you know, we've been having these sort of conversations uh, offline and off the record. And, and so I'm so glad that we're finally able to share some of this, this work that you're doing. Yeah, man. Thank you. This has been really good. Um, I always like to end these interviews with something I call the lightning round. Five easy <laughs> questions, five short answers. All right. Uh, just say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Veronica, what's the uh, first restaurant you ever worked at? Oh, gosh. Nymphas. As a matter of fact, I spent two whole months as a waitress. Never do it again. <laughs> I was terrible. John, how about you? Uh, Signs Tamales and Barbecue in Bryan, Texas. Uh, John, what's the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, Oh. He's too old to remember. Don't yeah. ask him that. <laughs> <laughs> First band I ever saw in concert. Uh, Van Halen? It's a solid answer. Veronica, how about you? Oh, gosh. Um, Veruca Salt. That's a great answer. 
Uh, Veronica, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Probably Chick-fil-A. John, how about you? Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich. (laughs) John, who's your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Um, Nolan Ryan. Veronica? Oh, not applicable. (laughs) Sports ball. It's all just sports ball. Uh, most people say J.J. Watt in that instance. I'm just going to, mm. just if, if anyone asks you for that in the future. Oh, good one. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, where's your favorite place to get a taco uh, other than the businesses you own? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, Mercedes in the Texaco station on the corner of Canal and uh, Samson. Yeah, I know that that place is really special to you. So uh, even though I said short answers, just explain to people like what that place is. Well, she's basically my adopted grandmother, Um, but um, Mercedes has had 30, 40 years of experience between Nymphas, Irma's, and I couldn't even tell you what other Houston um, restaurant, and um, she wanted to have a place of her own and happened to stumble across this little kitchen in a gas station, and um, her food is just incredible. It reminds me of my grandmother's home cooking. Her tortillas are fresh every morning. Makes uh, flour and corn that are just incredible, and uh, her menudo especially. All right, and then tell people how they can follow you on the internet and social media and all that good stuff. Sure. Well, we've got a couple different handles. I mean, for Instagram on uh, El Burro and the Bull, it's Burro and Bull, and then um, Henderson and Kane uh, for the Henderson and Kane General Store. And then uh, Sweet Mary's to come. Sweet Mary's to come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it course, is secretly out there on Instagram, but, you know. All right, so people can sleuth that out on their own. Uh, and, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. All right, all right. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next time.